Back in my Montreal days, when I started uh, coaching minor hockey, there was a sports shop on St. Catherine Street West in Montreal called Lord's Sports Shop. And I was in there one day buying tape or skate laces or something. And I noticed they had a small library of books to sell, a couple of which were on hockey. And I bought them. Uh, there were three, in fact. One was called The Hockey Handbook by Lloyd Percival. The other was called How to Play Hockey by Tom Watt, who at that time was a really well-known uh, coach at the University of uh, Toronto. And the third one was by the Russian coach Anatoly Tarasov, How to Win the Olympics, The Road to Olympus. And uh, I still have these books, and um, I don't think there are two dozen drills in the three of them. This is Richard Berkerson, and you are listening to Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show, and today's episode is called The Addiction to Drills. And my guest host, as I promised in my intro show, uh, episode 58, is a fellow who's been on this podcast before. He's out in Calgary right now. Um, where he lives and breathes and has coached. He's coached uh, minor, he's coached junior, he's coached pro in Europe. He's working on his PhD in coaching. You're going to hear a lot of him over the next number of episodes here on Grassroots. And I welcome Dean Holden back to the fold to discuss, disc, sorry, discuss our addiction <laughs> to drills. Welcome, Dean Hey, thanks for having me, Richard. And it's good to see you're about six beers in already. <laughs> not, not quite, but all right. You have those same books, I think. Pretty much. I just I don't have the Tom Watt book, um, but I am aware of his um, his history and his background going back to the UT days. And um, it's interesting. It's a side conversation, but um, there's a I think Canadian hockey has been very much influenced by a lot of former. Um, Canadian university coaches or people that have spent time yes. there, you yes. know, including Watt, King, Kingston, um, Keenan was in there. Um, Babcock, Claire Drake. I mean, you, Claire Drake. You yeah. know, Claire Drake. I mean, you, it's like there's a, a lineage that goes back. Yes. And over overlaps Tarasov's time and and um, you know continues up to fairly recent recently anyway. You know, Perry Pern even. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's less and less of those um, university guys now. Um, using that as a stepping stone to get to the NHL. But like I said, it's another conversation yep. entirely. Yep. Anyway, with regard to uh, certainly my introduction to coaching information, uh, it was also the same year that the National Coaching Certification Program started in 12 different locations across the country, one of which was in Montreal. Dave Draper, who was the coach of the Loyola College Warriors at the time, was the, uh, the instructor, and uh, his nickname was Zippy. Uh, but uh, he, Dave had uh, had cut me from the college team for the very simple reason that I just wasn't good enough. Um, the following year, I went back again and I got cut again. I guess he remembered me from the first time and went, you know, Richard, eh, it's not going to happen. But the the initial coaching clinics through the what was then the CAHA, Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, uh, the focus was not on drills. The focus was on reading about what you had to think about to teach individual tactics, to teach team play. Um, Lloyd Percival's book, The Hockey Handbook, even though the first edition was printed in 1960, so 62 years ago, uh, you read through that and you go, you know what? Aside from the references to players of that time, 
there's a lot of stuff in there that is still pertinent. The game hasn't changed that much. What has changed, though, and I, I know you'll agree with me because we're going to get deep into this, a deep dive into this uh, topic, is that if coaches don't have drills at their fingertips, they seem to be lost. Agreed. Agreed. I think um, <sighs> this topic is a great topic, and I think it doesn't get talked about enough. And I've spent probably the last couple of months delving into it more and more with um, people here at my end as well as yourself and others in the in the coaching community. Um, I was one of the masses. You and I talked briefly on air before this started, but I, I when I critically reflect back on my coaching career and my coaching development, I was highly, highly dependent on drills. And as a player, my distant memories of a player, and, and like you, I was cut from university a couple times. George Kingston um, took pity on me at U of C and allowed me to come out and train for a few weeks here and there, but um, I was not even close to being good enough. But I learned a ton during my time with George, very appreciative of the opportunity. And he exposed me to some drills and more game-like situations. It was kind of a combination, a blend. So I think that was kind of my first introduction that there could be a different way to do things um, as far as trying to train in practice what you want to get out of the players in a game. I didn't realize it at the time. It was only through the, you know, reflecting back where I realized it. And I, and I think George was, was ahead of his time. Um, I, I feel that a coach goes through almost a, like there's a lifespan to a coach if you're in it long enough. And it's an evolutionary lifespan where it can be. And when I was reflecting on my own um, development, I was stuck in that drill-centric mode for many years. Yeah, uh, and I think in, in my case, coaching in, uh, in Montreal in the town of Mount Royal, the first, I guess it was seven or eight years of my coaching before I took on a junior team, because I wasn't exposed to drills at the outset, the learning had to be mostly on my own or through Dave Draper in that level one coaching clinic, which was 30 hours long, um, that the focus wasn't on drills. The focus was on learning what constitutes proper coaching for team play, for individual tactics. Like there's a whole section in the Lloyd Percival book, which is almost 300 pages long on individual tactics. This is, you know, 30 years before Hockey Canada's or 35 years before Hockey Canada's program really got started on individual tactics. So you had to make up your own stuff. There was no internet. There was electricity. You know, in, in the 70s, we did have electricity, but there was no internet. Uh, there were very few publications on coaching or teaching or uh, hockey, period. That, that were certainly meant for minor hockey. There was practically nothing. So we were left to our own devices. When you compare it with today's coaches in 2022, they are inundated with software, inundated with YouTube videos, mm -hmm. inundated with books and journals and speakers and conferences and Zoom clinics, all presenting the latest and greatest. I just got uh, an email from a, from a company the other day with the five greatest drills from 2021. <laughs> so I looked at these drills and, and you know what? They're really good drills, 
that I don't think a single coach in the organization I'm working with right now in Whitby girls uh, could ever do. They, they are just not applicable. Our coaches are lost. Well, I think, I think when you say, I mean, I don't know what the drills are. I was hoping that you weren't going to tell me the horseshoe was one of them because I was. <laughs> I call it the horseshit drill, but pardon my language. Two, but yeah, two, 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 two letters removed. The horseshoe yeah. is only two letters removed. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's still one of the most widely used yep. drills as I walk into any. Yeah, pregame warmups, pre-practice or, warmups, pregame warmups. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think from what you're saying, the. Um, I mean, you're, you're a little bit older than me, not much, but a bit. And so, I mean, I, I, I started coaching in the mid eighties, early to mid eighties. So we did have electricity. I can vouch for that. And we even had fax machines. And I remember <laughs> late eighties, early nineties, I signed up for several drill of the month clubs and they came across on faxes. And so, Again, for the people that remember what a fax machine was, there was a certain, the, the, the cheap home faxes then, even at some at the office, where it was, it's like thermal paper and it's rolled up tightly. So as the faxes come out, it just re-rolls up and it's all curly and you have to get scissors out and you got to cut them, you know, in eight and a half and 11 segments and then hold them down under a photocopy machine to get them on a, on a normal piece of paper to put them into your coaching binder. And, and so, you know, before that, we were probably inscribing them on stone tablets and it was taking a while for a Pony Express to deliver them. So there are different ways now to get coaching resources, most of which are electronic, you know, video delivery, whatever, um, especially in the day and age of COVID, Zoom meetings as opposed to in-house or in-person coaching clinics and mentorship. But uh, I think... 30 years ago, there is still an awful lot of good content that's gone, that's been lost, been lost in time to some of these, you know, people are trying to use different buzzwords to kind of label it as their own and catchphrases when it's the same old stuff. It's just being um, relabeled to try and sizzle and sell because there's so many more private people trying to make a a buck in minor hockey. Um, And I think the the certification system that was born out of a lot of these, um, you know, forerunners, adventurers in coaching that are, you know, charting new territories, Lloyd Percival, Tarasoft, these, these kind of these monsters, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. If we go back and look at some of their work, I mean, they were so far ahead of the time. And as you said, you're into a Richard, there wasn't a ton of stuff in those books with with pictures of drills. It was more, well, not more, but there was more, they're using uh, words and verbiage to describe how to train and what to train and and the timing of the training. Um, You know, there's a lot more uh, emphasis, um, well, maybe not more emphasis, but it seemed to be there was more of um, an acceptance that connecting with people and communicating and the soft skills of coaching were very much important. It wasn't all X's and O's and it wasn't just, here's a drill manual and now you're set. Like, I think there's been a bit of a shift in time when I look back and I read some of these older books. Um, certainly there are a few diagrams, but now we've, we've over complicated it by reducing the game down to 
like so many minute details that I don't know if they matter, particularly at minor hockey. And yet a lot of this stuff seems to be geared toward, I've got a, a very competent team like midget AAA or junior or pro, and here's what I run and my five best drills, here's my five best drills and it's sexy because I'm at a high level and I'm gonna sell that to the masses. And then the, the, the house league U11 is gonna, oh look, this is a, this is a really sexy looking email, the five top drills of 2021. I'm going to start using them this week. And then you go out there and it's like, this is way beyond the scope of my kids. Back in, uh, I think it was November. We're in January right now. This show is being taped in early January. I happened to be in a rink watching the session before the practice that I was going to be watching from, uh, from the Whippy Girls program. And the, the group before us, was doing an evaluation session. There were about 40 or 50 kids on the ice of various levels of ability. So that was a challenge in and of itself. But we, I think we both know how to get around that. And this coach or volunteer was running a breakout drill uh, with uh, five uh, boys going in to fetch a puck, uh, go behind the net, carry the puck behind the net, pass it to a winger, three or four of the kids couldn't turn the wingers were out of position it was just it, it was just an absolute mess and the coach would blow the whistle and then the next group would go and then he would say something to somebody and the next group would go and so watch i mean that that's an extreme example of really bad stuff nobody has ever told that coach what you should and shouldn't do i have often gotten the feeling over the last, I would say, 15, 20 years, that coaches are terrified to give up control of what happens in a practice. And that's why they use the freaking whistle to stop, to start, to jump, to go, to dash, to prance, um, that every drill gets, you get one rep, then you sit and you wait 20 seconds, then you go again. It is so hard to get coaches to give up the whistle. It is so hard to get coaches to understand if you're going to do a drill that has some merit, let the kids go multiple times in a row, let them work out their mistakes. And it's a tough, tough sell. Anytime I think that you try to go against the prescriptive grain of the certification system, you're going to meet with resistance. But they weren't shown that in a, in a clinic, uh, uh, Dean. They just know it from their own days. They know it from watching hockey schools. They know it from watching other coaches in the rinks that they, uh, they practice or play in. That you, like I saw a drill, I saw a team practicing, again, in a rink adjacent to the, the complex that we, most of our practices are in has six rinks. So it's shared with the boys program, the ringette program, you know, public skating and so forth. I was watching a boys team and probably peewee, so maybe 11 and 12 year olds, and the whistle was going nonstop. They would do something, whistle, then whistle to start the next group. It was, I watched for about five minutes and, and I wanted to climb through the glass. Just like, if I were a kid out there, I'd just be going bananas. Like, let me do my thing. Leave me alone. <laughs> you know? Jeez. I, I, I empathize, like I, I've seen it too, and I, I just read a, uh, 
a brief article on LinkedIn, Dan Abrams' Sports Psych, and uh, something along the lines of player A talking to player B, and it was a soccer setting saying, yeah, you know, the Rondo today was just awesome. You know, it was great. We, were, we had it going. We were in the flow. We had the vibe. You know, our passes were on, on the mark, on the tape. Or, you know, I guess on the foot if it's soccer. And, yeah. and you know, he described it in this really nice British jargon on what a real effective passing Rondo would look like. And player B goes, you know, that's funny. He says, I had the exact opposite of, uh, opinion today. The coach was always on the whistle. He was always barking at us. He was telling us what to do, what not to do. When we were good, when we were bad, when we were ugly, he wouldn't shut up. I couldn't focus. Like, I just wish he would shut up and leave us alone. So same event two different two different perspectives by the players yeah um you know and it's funny because i i mean i see the same the same things and and my earlier comment about the whistle when you're in a certification clinic the first thing that the coaches ask me a lot of the times is are you going to provide us some drills to take away right and and we need the toys those- to take home to play with with all within all those drills, whistles are embedded, and it's it would be a very simple exercise, and yet a difficult one to pull off and to sell. If we said okay, if if we looked at a typical drill, and instead of saying the coach is going to blow the whistle to start and stop the drill, instead of the coach is going to take the whistle and throw it far far away into a lake, <laughs> the players need to understand the drill. And if they have questions, the coach should give them an opportunity to ask what, you know, what they don't understand, do a check for understanding, ensure that people know what's happening, but then put the, the, the emphasis on the players to know when to start and finish the drill. Yes. And by so doing, now you increase the engagement level of the next few players in line or on the bench or whoever you've got to set up. And you, you put them to the task of running and managing the drill. And that frees up the coach then to stand back out of the out of the area of play because the thing that pisses me off to no end is a coach that if you're doing a drill in the neutral zone, the freaking coach is in the middle of the drill. Like I want to punch him in the head. I really do. It pisses me off to no end. It's like one of my key key pet peeves. It's like why are you between the blue lines where the action is? Get your butt out of there. You're not a referee. You don't have a special pass to be there. Get out. And, and you should situate yourself where the kids are like waiting to go in right. out of the boundaries so that you can talk to the kids as they finish the drill. They come off um, like a shift on this, like a, a, like a shift on a bench and, and give them a break. Give them a second or two if they want to grab water or throw out a breath. You don't dive in on them right away. Give them a, a bit of chance to recover. And then you can ask them, what did they see? What did they think? What happened out there? Hey, on this play here, can you explain to me what you saw and why you decided to do what you did? If you could if you could have a time machine, would you go back in time and do the same thing? Or would you try and do something different? What, what would you do differently? Why? Why would you do that differently? Like you, you use like a Socratic questioning approach rather than a prescriptive dictatorial approach to bark and to stand there in a power position in the middle of the drill stopping and starting the drill with your whistle pointing at kids grabbing them moving them around like chess pieces it's it's completely wrong approach it's perceived as a loss of control too uh i had a talk with mm-hmm. uh, the parents of our u9 group 
or one of our, we have two U9 groups doing development sessions once a week uh, with a program that's actually pretty good, um, puck handling and passing and shooting and stuff like that. And, and the whistle is not used because there's only one guy who has the whistle, which is the head instructor. So they break into stations, let's say four stations. The four instructors in the stations do not have whistles. So the kids go after each, you know, turn by turn. Well, when I met with the parents and, and gave them the spiel on, you know, here's what the program is about. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the approach where the, the guy out there is using because he's under my direction. Uh, and one parent took me to task at the end when I asked for questions. And she started off by saying, are you just trying to appease us by letting us ask questions now? So I said, I, I, I don't do appeasement. So. I don't really know what you mean, but she was very worried about um, the kids getting enough feedback in every drill that there needed to be far more feedback. And I had to agree that on a couple of occasions, a couple of instructors were a little bit weak on giving a bit of feedback. But what I wanted to say to her, but didn't, because I really thought I'd be insulting her intelligence, was that when your child is in school in a class of 25 grade fours, let's say, do you think the teacher is giving feedback to every single child on every single exercise they do every moment of the time in the class? It's a one to 25 ratio. What do you think is going on in there? How does your kid get through school with a teacher who is running a class of, you know, nine-year-olds, 25 to 39-year-olds? How do they manage it? Exactly. And it's funny you use that example because I used that same example already this year once with, with um, a parent and it's you know why aren't you giving my uh little jill or johnny constant feedback why are you not following them around like doing everything for them and it's like i i think again being that being that coach that's controlling that's being prescriptive that's telling that's that's um relishing that power with the whistle and the direction and and uh running pattern drills um, it's like a dictator and they need to start to recognize that they need to give up some of that control in order to become a more efficient and effective coach and they need to take a step back they need to start to ask questions they need to admit they don't know it all and they're trying to learn they're no different than anybody else we're all humans we make mistakes but you know kids can learn from failure and success and if they're playing in a game setting, for instance, and they make a bad pass, do you think they they need to have the coach scream at them from the bench? That was a terrible pass. Why would you pass there? Or, or as they come off, to have the coach lurking at the door like a vulture of death waiting to give them crap for making a bad pass. Like I think they figured that one out on their own. So they, they got their own feedback from the nature of the game or the drill itself like I don't think we have to be master masters of, of stating the obvious I, I, so where and when is the place for drills personally for me I don't use drills I use games we'll get I, to I, that I've we'll got di to, I've, I've, I got divorced from drills a long time ago Rich. okay but do you think that in minor hockey, there is a place for using drills uh, the proper way. In dental school, yes. <laughs> in All minor right. hockey, I would use games. Let me tell you a quick story. Okay. So when I started coaching, 
I was coaching minor bantam double A. There was no triple A back then. So minor bantam was like, a, it was first year bantam. And that was before the age change, whatever that was, 14 year olds, I think. So for three years, I, I started off as assistant minor bantam. Those three years, there was a coach in our same double A, triple A association. We had midget triple A. That was it. There's nothing else for triple A. So the coach of a minor midget double A, a pure 16 year old double A team, he was a fireman at the time. And like you said, sometimes you go to the rink and there's a team practicing before you, after you. This team had a tendency to be practicing, you know, either right before or right after. So I'd stick around and watch, or I'd show up early and, and watch. And it was like, oh, it's uh, John's team again. And John, in the three years in that association, he always had the midget double A team. I didn't see him do a drill. And I thought, who is this idiot? This guy's not doing any drills. Like, he's not doing any teaching. He's basically mailing it in. He shows up, the kids go out, and they kind of, you know, first five or ten minutes, the kids would skate around, pass, and screw around, and a few shots on the goal at each end. They'd loop in and out and cut across. It wasn't just skating in a, in a you know, the counterclockwise circle, right? Or the clockwise circle. They'd just kind of be all over, milling around. And John, some days, would be on his skates, and he, he was a bigger guy. You know, it didn't look like he was in shape. And he was an older fella, and sometimes he didn't even put his skates on. Like a lot of the time, he'd just be on the bench and he'd just be watching, leaning over the ice, watching. But after that, you know, five or ten minute warm up, uh, the kids were always in two colors, and then he'd, he'd blow his whistle, the kids would come in, and he'd say something for a few seconds, and then the kids would put the pucks in the net or pick them up outright, depending. The goalies would go one in each net, and they'd set up a scrimmage. And it was, they all had the jerseys on, blue versus red or white or whatever it was. And John would go in to the timekeeper's bench and he would put time up on the clock. And he would run all the way between, you know, the two benches through the clock because that's how the rink was set up. And so he'd say a few things here, go back. Then he'd go say things over there, go back, you know, press the, the, the scoreboard button to keep track of the score. The time would be ticking down, just continuous not stop time, and he'd set up a couple of periods. I can't remember how long, but this is what his practice consisted of. He, he, he scrimmaged, and I'm going, what is he doing? Like, you know, we're all standing around, like, basically criticizing him, and yet this guy, in the three years that I watched, and that's all he did, all he did was win. All he did was win. He won the league every year. He won minor hockey week every year, tournaments, won cities, won provincials didn't do a drill and I, I thought this guy he must he must have some lucky rabbit's foot or like he's just lucky like I attribute it to luck and I watched I never and the funny thing is I never walk I never talked to him like what are you doing like I never asked him like I mean I make small talk with him I just I was just a young kid right I didn't I, and he was really old so I didn't have the courage or the confidence to go up and ask him what's your why are you doing this? Like, what could I actually learn from it? Instead, I criticized him because he was different. And I missed a very valuable learning opportunity there. And it wasn't until probably 15 or 20 years later when I remembered back to this guy and this incredible thing that I had witnessed that I don't have, I can't put context to it, Richard, which I really regret. Um, but I'll tell you, he was ahead of his time. His kids had fun. They always had a smile on their face. 
Like, who wouldn't? You're going to the rink to practice. Well, we're not working hockey, we're playing hockey. And these kids practiced by playing hockey. They, it was the highest form of training when I look back on it. How do you train to play a game? You play a game. Like, but you, you know, and anyway, I just, it, it's to me, when I made that realization, that connection, like, you know, 20 years later, I thought maybe, you know what, maybe there is something to it. And that's kind of one of the, the things that kind of moved me down that path. When, uh, when I had the radio show in Ottawa with uh, my friend, Greg Kennedy, and you met Greg Hi, a few Greg. years ago. Yeah. Um, who's now coaching in Slave Lake, actually, to north of you by a few hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, um, we, uh, we were talking about teaching games for understanding, TGFU, as it's known in, uh, in physical education uh, circles. Um, and uh, Greg was adamant that hockey is different from football, rugby, soccer, all these other sports in that you have to learn how to skate and that you had to drill kids or not drill kids. That's wrong terminology. You had to teach them how to skate before they could actually play the game. We had on a, as one of our guests that that year, a fellow who was coaching rugby um, in Santiago, Chile, oh, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who was talking about teaching games for understanding his approach. He was a British guy. I think he was British. Yeah, um, yeah. I know. Him. I, I've had several conversations with him. Ha, yeah, that's right. We talked about that and his approach yeah. uh, down there. When we got off the air, we were sitting in the studio in, in Ottawa, TSN in Ottawa and uh, Greg turns to me and said that that is freaking ridiculous to to do rugby where you can run you know you, with no drills that it's all game game based play i said well it's not ridiculous it's different and he said but in hockey you need to be able to skate i should get greg on to to mm -hmm. discuss this again but uh, mm -hmm. there aren't many coaches who would have the courage and i can't think of any other word for it have the cojones, the moxie, the moxie works. Yeah, you're smiling at me. The cojones to actually try that uh, with with a group of kids and see where it takes them. So what what I've done in the organizations mm -hmm. I've worked with, I've mandated um, small area games in every practice. And what normally happens is normally coaches have a good 10, 15 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes of gameplay, uh, usually at the end of the practice occasionally in the middle, rarely, if ever, at the beginning. The occasional problem arises where a coach just loses track of time and leaves it for the last five minutes. The kids get two shifts each, <laughs> you know, playing a cross-ice game. But there's no method to the madness. There's no reason for them to take it to uh, a different level. Yeah. So really what you're talking about is teaching games for understanding, using games to teach the game. There's a lot of different terminology wrapped around, it. and I think the the it initiated from the TGFU approach um, from in Australia, the UK, yeah, you know, from from the UK. And Was it the UK or Australia? There, yeah. UK and the two guys. Oh, geez, I'm drawing a blank because I know the university is just north of London. There, um, anyway. They went over to Australia and they were hired. One of them was hired, I think, to go over and he embedded himself within the Australian coaching circles there. And they, they, they shared an awful lot of that approach. But there's, there's been a number of um, different approaches that are similar. So the you know, game sense, um, constraints, ecological dynamics, there's a whole ton of um, 
ecological dynamics what what are ecological yeah, dynamics oh there's so many of them richard i i'm i'm missing them but it, at the end of the day my understanding of it is um i've tried to try it and steal a little bit from all these different methodologies i've got i think i've got about 15 or 20 books on tgfu itself and i was actually going to do a phd on that through university of british columbia but um my my approach is I've got a game-based curriculum um, that continues to evolve, and I, I did share some of it with you guys when I was down there in Oshawa a few years back. Um, but it's also not just the curriculum, but it's how you how you teach it and apply it, and and use the questioning more rather than the prescription, and let the kids try to figure it out. Um, so yes, and. and Let's so Dean. Let's let's segue into what you sent me uh, today okay. about a practice that you had a couple of days ago uh, with your son's team. Maybe if you could provide a quick background of what level that is and about the um, the metrics that you charted in that game in that practice and okay. why. Sure, um, Nick Hill. That was the name of the um, UK coach in rugby in Chile, just so that's the, the ones are yes. the listeners are aware. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, Nick, Nick's a good guy. I'm not sure if he's still there. I've lost, lost touch with them. Um, so yes, our, our practice a few days ago in our practice, we had nine skaters, one goalie who was a call up. We've got a short roster to begin with 13 skaters and one goalie, but we've got kids out now with COVID and various and sundry ailments. So, we, we, in the hour, the assistant coach wanted to run some drills at the start because he felt that we were, um, we've only had two league games up until now, the rest have all been seeding. And he said, we've only scored three goals in, in two games. So goal scoring is a problem. We don't, we don't have any natural goal scorers and, and we need to work on our shooting technique. We need to score more, we need more. And, to do that, we got to get more shots on net, and we are are spacing for um, passing and receiving. Like we're we're not we don't have the right spacing, the right timing, um, you know, the right technique. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't have. So, but this is U U15 boys. Yeah, U15. We're level five out of six, so we're okay. right. we're low. We're low level. We're we're second from the bottom, right? So that's an important point so we understand the context here so you know granted he kind of just made the stuff up on the spur of a hat because i was going to run the whole practices games which i normally do but i said okay well why don't you take the first bit of practice and you know 20 minutes half hour and and you know work on on these things like decide what you want to what you want to use to to um go after this intention of shooting scoring and for lack of a better word, support distance when it comes to passing. So he chose a, a three-man weave to warm up and started at one end because we only had nine skaters. We went from one end to the neutral zone, curled back, come in as a three-on-o, try and get into an attack triangle, and then get a shot on the net. And I'm, I, I didn't record any metrics on this because I, I was just kind of observing, and I thought partway through I go, I should probably record the metrics on this. Yeah. And I wish I would have videotaped the entire practice just so I had it as proof and I could go back and I could 
pick out all the fine points and make sure I didn't miss anything. Anyway, he stopped it three or four times. The kids, again, level five out of six, we are what we are, out of shape, not enough kids. Social affiliation reasons for the most part is the motivation. Um, but we are what we are. And we couldn't give or receive a pass to save our souls. Some of us can't, can only turn one way. Um, you know, it's, this is our reality. And, and the, it, to be perfectly honest, a three-man weave is completely above our skill set. So he stopped it three or four times to offer some words of wisdom. He didn't get mad at him, but he, you know, I could see he was getting frustrated and, and the kids were getting frustrated. The goalie wasn't getting any shots for a warm-up, and when they were, they were very weak or right at him. And after a little bit, he adjusted. Then we went into the second thing, which he ran very similar, a two-on-one out of one end where the defenseman initiates a pass from beside the net. There's two forwards, one on each wall. So the D-man coming beside the net makes a pass to the right or the left side forward. The forwards skate up through the neutral zone. They crisscross, and then the D is supposed to gap up and play a two-on-one. And again, the intent is uh, passing, like support distance. You know, so passing, receiving, the timing, the spacing, um, shooting, and scoring. Um, the numbers that I had on that, that, I did keep the numbers on that. Mm -hmm. We had 41 reps. The D-men intercepted eight of them and then stopped because there's no, this is the problem with the drill. The drill neuters the realities of the game. So in a, in a game, if the D-men intercepts a pass, he should jump up into the play and go on offense. Like, But in a drill with the whistle, and with a drill structure like this, it, it takes away that transitional element. So it denies learning and thinking opportunities that come off of mistakes because hockey's a game of mistakes. When one team makes a mistake, often the other team will get possession. Now they're on offense and it's their turn to try and score. And then the other team has to back check, forecheck, whatever. So the, the game of hockey is based in transition and yet these two drills did nothing about transition. So out of 41 reps, Eight were intercepted by the D and then died because the D kind of looks around with the puck on his stick and, okay, just dump it over to the coach or shoot it down the ice. That's not what you want him to do in a game. Six of them went offside. So on a two-on-one, six times they went offside. So then he yelled at them that they were done or blew it down. And then there was 19 occurrences where they got in. There, well, 19 occurrences where there was no shot. They either fumbled the puck they shot and they missed the net or something happened. It buggered off. The puck went way down the ice. So he just blew it down and said, okay, forget it. We're not, we're not going to give you a chance to recover the puck. The play discontinued 19 times without a shot. So we've got eight interceptions, six offsides and 19 incomplete plays, no shot. So out of 41, that leaves us with eight shots on net. They weren't very good shots and three of them, went in so there are three goals the goalie after said to me boy coach he said i, I was expecting that the kids at a higher level than me because he's he's team six we're team five he said i was expecting the kids at a higher level than me would shoot a heck of a lot harder because we got guys in our team that can shoot harder and more accurately too he said on the shots i got they shot right into my glove i didn't have to move and out of those eight shots there was um, five of them 
where basically there's no pass. There's one pass to start where the D passed to our forwards, and that one player hung on to the puck the entire way, didn't oh, yeah. make a pass, beat the defenseman wide, and then shot it on net. The other three times they tried to make a pass at the blue line coming back in, and it was a that was it. And then that guy went in and took a shot on net. So very low skill level. The, the second one we did after that was a game, a two-on-two continuous game set up between the ringette lines. So we had a shooter tutor in one and the goalie in the other. And basically one minute shift, there's certain rules of, you know, of engagement, but it's, essentially it's a two-on-two. If nobody scores in the one minute, I blow the whistle and there's that bloody whistle again. In this case, it was needed because that signals both groups of players. They have to hustle off to the bench for a legal line change, tag up. The two new guys go, they go behind the net and then respond to wherever the puck was left. That's a different use. That's play. a different use of the whistle though, Dean. And in, in, yeah, in, it's not in, a drill. It's just to no. signify a, a, yeah. a stoppage of play and a start of play. So and start, like a stop and start at the same thing. Yes. Yes. And that's what you use it for in a, in a hockey game. When there's a whistle, it means there's a stoppage of play and the referee's going to, you know, pick up the puck and drop it and away we go. So I, but I, you know, yeah, there is a few whistles. So in, we played for a total of, um, oh, and if you score, you go behind, leave the puck, go behind the net, pick up a loose puck and attack the other way. So you get rewarded. You could stay on for another shift, but the team gets scored on, they hustle off and the new guys have to come around anyway. So in uh, 20, what do we have? 22 minutes, 22 minutes of playing time. We had 29 shifts. Um, and now sometimes when players scores early, then we blow the whistle. So that was a shift. It wasn't a full minute, but you have them up to a minute to score. Otherwise you're both out. So instead of when a D intercepts a pass, instead of the rep ending, like in the previous two on one, it's just a transition, like in a normal game of hockey and play continues. So now we've got that experiential training that's going to happen in a game that if we intercept the puck, now we got to go on offense. And if we lose possession, we got to back check or, you know, head up, identify who do we pick up? What do we do? We got to hustle back, you know, or go on a four check if it's, if we're above them and we, we can go into a four check, but the rules allow for continuous learning time for at least that one minute or less if you get scored on, cause then you're off, but then that should um, incentivize you for wanting to get back on and not to get scored on because you want to play. You don't work hockey, you play hockey. So the rules allow for continuous game time up to a maximum shift time of a minute, or they reward you if you keep scoring. I've had people stay on for up to eight one-minute shifts and keep scoring. That's my, my all-time record at a midget AAA level. They're dead tired, but they figured out how to work hard and work smart. And the continuous game allows a player to react to their successes and failures and they gain feedback in a live setting without the coach having to talk to them. So they're figuring it out as they go. And sometimes it takes, like, sometimes they don't figure it out. Like, let's be honest, they don't. And they, we can play this Parker's game for a full season and some of them just don't quite get everything, but they get something and they get a little bit more something almost every time. So out of that, that game period, Richard, we scored 16 goals in that game period. I did not track the, the shots on the shooter, tutor, and the goalie and how many missed and all, because I'm running the, the stopwatch for a minute and I'm trying to talk to some of the players on the benches 
as I'm doing all this. So I just, I, I can multitask, but not that much. Yeah, but that, that was my question now. You were talking, the feedback to the players who are on the bench waiting for their shift, they have a minute to sit there and wait. Uh, what's the nature of that feedback? What did you see out there? Why did you decide to do X? What else could you have done? Is there any other different ways that you would try it in that exact same situation if it presented itself again? What would you do? So again, it's Socratic questioning. I don't tell them anything. I ask some questions and then I might guide and facilitate a little bit, but I don't, you know what, honestly, I don't talk a ton on the bench even. I let them play, then I'll, I'll, I'll blow it down. And typically we'll play 10 to 15 minutes, then we'll blow it down. Everybody get, comes in, has a water, gathers around. I stay on the bench and then I'll start to ask some questions. And I might say, okay, red team, here's what I want you to think about, go over there and talk. Be, blue team, you think about this, go over and talk. And then you're gonna report back to the group. And now again, Richard, we had nine skaters. So there's three guys resting on one bench, two guys resting on the other. I wasn't gonna go and, like, like I said earlier, rest and recovery is important. The pace was actually very good. I wasn't gonna go in there and start to talk to somebody knowing that, by the time they get off the bench from the whistle, they've got maybe like a total of 60 seconds. By the time they get to the bench, they're down to 52 seconds. They get on the bench, they grab a water, they look up, they go again. They're not going to be receptive to anybody coming to tell them anything. Just let them play. Shut up. Let them play. And then at the end, we have a little debrief and I ask them those questions. And I think the important thing is to give them time once you've asked a question and you know from being a teacher silence is uncomfortable so when you present a question to the class you got to shut up and it's gonna you're gonna start to sweat because we're so used to filling time with vocalization right as soon as uh you create a drill and this is one of the major problems with providing classes <coughs> with again, drills again <coughs> again no, no, not a game. I'm talking about when coaches are doing drills. <laughs> give me I gotta a break. get my towel. I'm crying give, over here. Yeah, give me a break, man. So as soon as we create drills, which we which our coaches are doing all the time for tactical play, individual tactics, small group tactics, team play, and so forth, it almost begs for feedback on what they're doing even though we instinctively know, or we should instinctively know that it's pretty much impossible to replicate a team situation or small group situation that you want the kids to execute in a game by doing it in practice, because you can't have the same resistance. The, the parameters of what's going on around you are not the same. It's a fluid game. It's not like football where you're going to have a pulling guard in that particular play, and he's always going to pull. He may not succeed in his block, but he's always going to pull the same way on, on that, you know, red dog 22 play. Uh, it's always going to be the same. Always going to be the same. Hockey, it's never going to be the same, ever. That's the challenge, and it's tough to get coaches to admit that now, okay, you're doing a two-on-one drill like the one you just described, which I've seen a thousand times, or a three-on-two or a breakout drill. They're, they're hell-bent on breakouts. That if you do these breakout drills enough in practice without any resistance, without any change in, in pattern, that it's actually going to work in a game. And it never does. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, there's, 
coaches are creatures of habit and we've already talked about it here in the sense of I mean <clears throat> how we were coached when we were players for those of us that were players back in the day before we got into coaching and then certification systems teach us a certain way um, I, I've mentioned already I think we've got such a reductionist mindset we're trying to get break down all these bloody details when yes some detail is is required but let's not like we're like really hockey is a simple game invasion sports are a simple game there's principles of play we need to focus on principles of play not the minutiae of all this detail level crap that a, a u15 level five out of six couldn't care about or and even the level one player like triple a they don't care about a lot of this stuff at the end of the day they want to play right when you, when we look at um the people doing the development programs everywhere. And I'm not picking on anybody specifically, but uh, where everybody expects constant feedback for pretty much, as I described before with the U9 group, with you know just about everything they do on the ice. The best instructors I've seen are the ones who can control a group of 15 kids all by themselves because they don't expect to have to give feedback to every single child, much like, again, back to the classroom analogy, um, that unless a child has, a, you know, a, an IEP, individual learning plan, or has, you know, some needs a, a, an ex, a educational assistant for some reason, has a learning disability, for the most part, it's the teacher in there alone, and a good, qualified, capable teacher with 25, 30 children can run the classroom quite nicely. And the same thing with a hockey instructor or a hockey coach. You know, we don't need six people on the ice to be yakking constantly at the kids. We just don't. You know, if you know what you're doing, you're doing a proper program. You, you just don't need to give feedback all the time. And that's what happens when you have drills all the time. It's, it's just begging for, well, we have to give more feedback. Well, we have to give good feedback at the right time but it doesn't have to be a constant barrage. I think the uh, the best coaches that I see, when, when you use the term feedback for me, is I think about um, generating passion and enthusiasm for the players on the ice. Right. So I would say um, that would be my, if you have to, if you have to use that word feedback, I think, you know, clarity of terms, definitions. If a feedback for me is if, if, if the instructor, the coach, the teacher genuinely loves their, their vocation, that they, they want to be in the rink, they want to be with that U9 group of kids and yeah. they're excited and they, they can vocalize that as, as every one of those 15 kids goes through their, their station or whatever they're running or their drill, God help them. Um, but if they provide some sort of a positive commentary, it's got to be genuine. It's got to be authentic. You can't blow smoke up anybody's butt. It's got to, and this is where you, you move from general commentary to specific. And right. Instead of saying, good shift, Richard, it'd be, Richard, I, you really did a good job on that shift because you were first to the puck. And we've worked on and we've talked about you being first to the puck and your, your speed and your quickness. Good job, Richard. So, Good shift, Richard. I, you know, Dave King taught me that so many years ago, and he had me do a little two-by-two two matrix tick box, general versus specific, 
positive versus negative on a feedback, you know, two by two matrix. And, and he said, just listen to yourself, just even audio tape or on a, like in a recorder as you're coaching and then go back. And how many comments do you make in total? How many are general? How many are specific? How many are positive? How many are negative? And I was going, man, I'm a real good general positive kind of guy, but that's just, that's fluff. That's babysitting. That's uh, time filling waste of time feedback. Like, and kids will tune out to that. Now, if you, if you make it specific, as soon as you use a person's name on your team or nickname, last name, however you want to do it, but as soon as you may use their name, it becomes personal. Their ears will perk up. And then if you attach something to it that's specific, I think it grabs their attention more. And I think that's an important part of feedback. Now, you don't need to do it every time, but just that overall general enthusiasm and passion. And when you do choose to to provide feedback, make sure you're, you're specific. And, and it's okay to be on the negative side, you might say negative, not meaning you suck, Richard, your skating's terrible, go play chess. That's negative. The, uh, 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 what I mean is it could be critical feedback. Richard, we still got to keep working on your starts. It's coming. At least your knee bend is better, but really, you really got to work on your right. strength to get that right. first push. So there's a difference, right? You're being a critical friend. You're not being a jerk. Right. But you don't have to give them feedback every single rep. You no. can just even even a smile, even right. a smile or a thumbs up or a high five. It could be nonverbal and a positive thing to draw that enthusiasm. The best teachers of the game or teachers of skills that I've seen or worked with. Uh, Howie Meeker was one who was uh, all, almost obnoxiously positive when he was on the ice. Because <laughs> I, I did spend a morning with him once 100 years ago in Montreal. Um, but he was very, very positive and would give the, same, the the very kind of feedback that you just described. The other one is a guy I've seen teach uh, skating out in this region um, who is so positive and so effervescent on the ice. The kids love being out there with him. And whether he's got eight kids with him or 12 kids with him, he's not breaking down every skill and correcting every single angle of every foot that, you know, goes askew when you're doing a crossover or something. He's showing them the basic essence of what needs to be done takes them through a pretty simple series of exercises and away they go, you know? Um, and, and when I do small area games with coaches or show them what needs to be done, you're using the small area games to illustrate a type of play that you want to get out of them. You want to draw out of the kids. So you have rules for your games. Like you just described in the two versus two, one minute shifts, you get to keep the puck, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, forehand passes only backhand passes only passes off the boards or, two passes before a shot. There's a, there's an unlimited number of ways to, to teach the kind of team play you're trying to draw out of the kids through gameplay. Cause you'll never be able to do it in a drill. Never. Exactly. And it's called constraints. So all those things that you're talking about using the, the common terminology is a constraint. So you need to make two passes or you have to do this before you can do that. So we're, we're, we're using constraints within our gameplay. Right. Right. To put an to put an emphasis, geez, I think I've had a couple of beers. Emphasis, emphasis on emphasis, emphasis on the right um, syllable on on the right syllable, so that you know if we're working on passing and receiving, well, what do we need to do then to draw right. that out within our game setting? And and I, I I'm smiling as you're talking because there's a there's a great 
It's on YouTube, Funny Golf Tip from J.C. Anderson on YouTube. And it, it's from 2010. It's a minute and 14. Is that the one and, where the guy is, is yeah, making, yeah. you know, 30 seconds of instructions and then bounces the ball off his club and whacks it in the air? Yeah, yeah. It's a minute and 14. But, yeah, I mean, okay. it, it, for, your, for the listeners, because it's not on video, yeah. Funny Golf Tip from J. Period C. Period Anderson oh, it's on fantastic. YouTube. And, yeah. and, and it's a great clip to show somebody, to show a coach or a group of coaches or even the kids to get a laugh and say, if I ever get this technical, laugh at me. Right. Because nobody cares. Like you get lost after the first 15 seconds. What was that guy's name? J.C. Anderson? Correct. I don't know. It says a uh, PGA tour player, JC Anderson's classic satirical yeah. instructional on what yeah. to think about when swinging the club. So, right. Okay. Yeah. And for those who want to learn French, there's a, a great video clip that came out about three or four years ago about a New York cab driver trying to explain uh, why, uh, how to count to a hundred in French. So for those of you who are looking for further language instruction, that's the thing to look up on YouTube. Uh, okay, Richard, what do, can we include can we include these in any of the show notes? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right, Dino. Let's let's bring this discussion to a close. We've Please, really yes. uh, taken a, a hack. Flogged that dead horse. That horse is like just yeah. decaying. In it's front of us. lying on its back and its legs are up in the air and flailing away. Uh, our addiction to drills, and I want to thank. Dean Holden for joining me here on Grassroots the Minor Hockey Show today. Uh, you can uh, check us out at uh, wherever you hear podcasts or go to grassrootsminorhockey.com and all the shows. This is number 59 are listed there. And uh, uh, and we will uh, be back in touch, Dean, for our next show soon. Got it? Sounds good. All right, sir. Thank you very much. And thank you listeners for, well, listening. See you in the ring. <laughs>